0: When you survey the material that is out there, sermons that have been preached with regards to Peter's sermon recorded here in Acts chapter 2, you would see that a lot of people make the point that Peter had quite an introduction that had already been prepared for him leading up into the sermon. Now, a lot of people leading into this text would say, you know, there's a principle there to be garnered that there are places for introductions, and I love introductions, I Till this day, I can still remember the introductions of some of the messages that I've preached to you. Um, A Bible study like no other was one of them. Uh, Does God care what I wear? There are these introductions that I find so precious. they are opportunities to kind of set the table and prepare for what's coming forth in the exposition of the Word of God. But Peter, you might say, had an introduction like no other on the day of Pentecost to his forthcoming sermon just look at verses 1 through 13 and you get an idea of what was going on. All of a sudden there on the day of Pentecost, you scroll back to verse 1, the 120 or so are in one place and suddenly there comes a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, it fills the entire house where they are sitting, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you might remember, just by way of recap, that at some point, they make their their way outside. And as they make their way outside, the 120 or so are speaking in languages, known languages, that are foreign to them, but native to many of those who had gathered there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So it was a miracle. People were wondering, what in the world is going on? What could this mean? As a matter of fact, when you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that the people, these Jews... From all different nations, they were saying things like this. Whatever could this mean? They were amazed and perplexed. It was a miraculous thing. How did these Galileans, these untaught, by and large, uneducated Galileans, how do they know my native tongue? It was a miracle. God had prepared the way for the forthcoming sermon that Peter was about to preach. Now, some people were marveling and they were wondering what it meant, and then other people were mocking. We'll get to that in a moment. But we're going to be considering this week and in uh, the following week, maybe following two weeks, Lord willing, we will be studying Peter's Pentecost sermon. And one of the things I want you to notice as we go through the book of Acts is that Jesus is building his church, even as he promised he would in Matthew 16. And if you were going to ask, what is a primary way in which Jesus builds his church? You find an example right here. In Acts chapter 2, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of His Word. As a matter of fact, on this day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are going to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's through the message preached that God is going to build up His church, calling sinners out of darkness into light. Now, if 3,000 people come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on this day, you have to wonder how many people heard Peter preaching. Peter had quite a crowd. Peter had quite a preparation with the miraculous work that was going on on that occasion. One of the things I do want to tell you as well, because you might see in some of your Bibles, it might say Peter's Pentecost sermon, and you might read through it, and you might say, that took me all of three minutes or four minutes to read. So if Peter preaches for three or four minutes, George, why do you preach for a lot more than that? (laughs) To which I would call your attention very briefly to Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 says, And with many other words, (laughs) he testified and exhorted, exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. What we have here is an inspired snapshot, if you will of what Peter proclaimed to that crowd on the day of Pentecost. We'll jump right into the text. We begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, where we read, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So, In the midst of the miraculous work that the crowd is observing. Now, maybe at this point it started to kind of subside for a moment. The speaking in foreign languages, native to the speaker, uh, foreign to the the speaker, but native to those hearing. Maybe that begins to subside. We're not told the details. But Peter, essentially as it appears, steps to the forefront. He comes to the forefront, and he had a little bit of a contrast presented in the text. If you look in our text that begins with, but Peter. that language there presents a kind of contrast. And you might say, well then, okay, what is being contrasted? Well, in the previous verse, in verse 13, you see that others were mocking. Some people were saying, what could this all mean? But then other people, verse 13, were mocking and saying, these ones are drunk with new wine or sweet wine. So they had a wrong view of what was happening. They were saying, this is craziness. They're just drunk. That's what's happening here. But Peter, so Peter in a contrastive way is going to set forth what's really happening. But you'll notice that Peter um, wasn't alone. He comes before the gathered crowd and we're told that Peter was standing up with the eleven. Isn't that so appropriate? No choreography was needed. They didn't need a rehearsal like, okay, the twelve, you're all going to kind of step forward at this point. It's just the way it happened, that he's there with the 11. He stands up and the 11 are with him. And I want to remind you of something I said when we talked about the individual apostles that are listed in Acts chapter 1. Even though you're not going to see many of them named specifically again in the book of Acts, here are opportunities to remember some of those men. Matthias is right here among the 11 that comprise the 12. So here they are together together. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter appropriately steps forward. He had been, we know, the spokesman, if you will, for the apostles. So he steps forward. His name, by the way, appears first in every listing of the apostles. Has a kind of leadership position, if you will, among them. He steps forward and he raised his voice and said to them. Now we're going to quickly come to what Peter said, but I want you to notice a change that you'll already be holding here in the text. This is a different Peter than the Peter that you saw not too long ago towards the end of the Gospel accounts. Remember the end of, in the end of the Gospel accounts you have multiple servant girls saying, Hey, aren't you that one who was with Jesus? And Peter repeatedly denies that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have a group of people. You can see all this in Matthew 26, verses 69 through 74. A group of people saying, wait, you're a Galilean, your speech betrays you. And he's cursing and he's swearing and he's saying that he does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Something is noticeably different here in Peter. There is no uncalculated haste. He is ready to step forward with boldness and courage and to speak about who Jesus is. And you say, what changed? What happened that brought about this change? Well, I don't think it was just one thing. If you go through the Gospel accounts, it seems to be a few things. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He had a private resurrection appearance that He provided for Peter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. He restored Peter in John 21 at the Sea of Tiberias. He had opened up Peter's understanding, to use language from Luke 24, 45, that he might understand the Scriptures. And now Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He is ready for this occasion. He is not the same Peter that He was, if you will. Jesus was so graciously committed to keeping, restoring, and empowering Him. And just by way of an application for you, I don't know where you might find yourself today in your life or in your Christian walk, but if you belong to the Lord Jesus, I would encourage you to be reminded if you find yourself in a particular need of keeping, restoring, or empowering, if you are Christ, you are in the grip of a Savior who keeps, whose grace restores and whose spirit empowers. So there's Peter. He steps forward, if you will. He says to those assembled men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So the address is clear. You might even say it's cordial, it's respectful, it's kind, but it's nonetheless firm. Give ear to what I'm about to say. Imagine that. He doesn't have a PA system. He hasn't had any practice. He doesn't know this moment is coming. Well, at least we have no hint that he does. He is just ready in that moment and he's seizing that moment where courage and power are undergirded by the Holy Spirit. And he is going to be unambiguous. He is going to be clear. And he is going to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think another good takeaway would be this. A good takeaway would be, and I would say to you, I would exhort you, Christian, Please do not be deterred by the mocking that you experience as a result of being a Christian. I say that in light of the context because Peter's going to address the mocking. There were people mocking what was going on, right? Chapter 2, verse 13. These are filled with new wine or sweet wine. And Peter's not deterred by their mocking. And I want to remind you that if you are vocal for Jesus Christ, you should expect mocking. You should expect people to insult you, to make fun of you. To say all kinds of evil against you for Jesus' namesake, Please expect it. Don't be surprised by it. You don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. The truth is offensive. You don't want your tone to be offensive. You don't want to be condescending. You don't want to do any of those things. But the truth that you proclaim that Jesus is the only way is offensive to people. And I would remind you that, to use language from J.C. Ryle, you drink the same cup that your master drank. When you are insulted by men for his name. I just want to remind you uh, the Lord has told his people, Old Testament and New Testament alike, that they could expect this kind of thing. To use a scripture, two verses that maybe aren't as familiar as other ones, I want to call your attention briefly to um, Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51, verse 7, um, the Lord said through Isaiah the following Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people whose heart is my law or whose law is in my heart. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. All right, so Isaiah 51.7. God is speaking to those who know righteousness. To use language from Matthew Poole. Those who know it, who love it, who practice it. Those who have been regenerated by the grace of God. Those who not only have God's law written on tablets of stone, so to speak, but have God's law written upon their hearts. It's good to be reminded, as one commentator noted, that you could have all that happening. You could love righteousness and have God's law written in your heart. And you could still be liable to that vulnerability of fearing the insults and the reproach of men. And in light of that, God told his people, do not fear their reproaches and do not be afraid of their insults. He gives motivation as to why they should not fear in Isaiah 51 verse 8. Kind of gives a contrast between the brevity of God's enemies and the permanence of God's salvation. Isaiah 51 verse 8 says, For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. So he's basically saying to his people, even in that old covenant context, listen, when you have mockers who are mocking you for truth's sake, the mocking that they're going to do is only going to be for a season. And if they do not repent, they will not have eternal life. They will be for a season and then suffer eternal punishment. You pray for such ones. You pray for such ones to come to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the Lord is contrasting that to say this and they are but for a moment. My salvation is permanent. Therefore, do not be afraid. In love, speak. I just remind you of that. There's much more that can be said about a Christian's approach to mockery. Remember the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, verse 12, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can see an example of that in Second Chronicles 36, verse 16, how they kept mocking God's messengers that were sent to them, the people of Judah. Peter wrote, Saint. Peter, who's preaching here in the day of Pentecost, in his epistle, first epistle, uh, chapter four, verse 14, "If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part." He is glorified. So that's a quick pastoral parenthetical note. Please do not put your light under a bushel. Make sure it shines. Speak truth in love with gentleness and respect. But nonetheless, even like Peter here, in an unambiguous, clear, and firm way. Okay, back to the text. When Peter gets up to speak. He says, Let this be known to you and heed my words. And I want to tell you at this point, Peter's not speaking in a language that's unknown to his hearers. He's either speaking in Aramaic, which would be common for the Jews who were gathered there, or he's speaking in Koinonia Greek, which was the lingua franca of the day, the common language that people spoke. So he's either speaking one or two of those languages, languages that people would understand. And what he's going to do is he's going to explain what's going on here with that foreign language speaking that they were hearing, he's going to explain what's going on. But first, he's going to quickly respond to the mockers. Look at verse 15. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, some suggest, and I can't say this with the finitude, some suggest that there's maybe an element of humor here in Peter's response. Sort of maybe to just kind of, you know... um, A little bit of humor to kind of help the crowd with what he's about to say and so on. I don't know. I think he's providing a clear argument. He's like, these are not drunk as you suppose. Guys, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's the third hour of the day. In the Jewish clock, so to speak, they would reckon time. The beginning of the day would begin around 6 a.m. So the third hour of the day was 9 a.m. And Peter is basically saying, look... It it wouldn't even make sense. It's not a logical conclusion. It's against all logical probability and likelihood that these individuals, myself included, Peter is essentially saying that we would be drunk. You say, well, why is that? People do that. So why is it impossible that they are doing that? Well, it's highly... uh, He's basically saying it's not likely. It's not probable. It's not what's happening at all because there's a few reasons. The common behavior of fallen men is to get drunk at night, 1 Thessalonians 5.7. But even more so, in the common context of the day, the third hour of the day of the Jewish culture was committed to prayer at the temple. So at 9 a.m., that was a time in which people were going to the temple to pray. And especially on a feast day, they wouldn't eat, the Jewish people would not eat until after that time of prayer, until after 9 in the morning. The commentator John Gill provides quotes from different Jewish writers to substantiate that point. But it's as though Peter's saying, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's a feast day. It's the day of Pentecost. We haven't even eaten yet. So on. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. But then he goes on to say what was happening. He's going to explain it. Beginning at verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. To use language from John Gill, it's as though Peter was essentially saying, this is not the effect of wine, but this is the fulfillment of Prophecy. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. We'll get into the details of the prophetic quote, uh, the quotations from the prophet Joel in a moment. I want to call your attention to two things that Peter's doing in this moment. He is helping the people learn that they are to interpret experience through the lens of Scripture. This thing that you're seeing happen right here on the day of Pentecost, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So that's how you're going to interpret this experience. You're not going to interpret it through your own carnal and fallen mind. You're going to interpret it through the word of God. And he was going to be the one to interpret it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for them. So first thing I want to call your attention to there is that practice. It's just a reminder for you. It's a reminder for me, please. Please. Do not interpret your experience through your own human, carnal, fallen lenses. Interpret your experience through the living and abiding Word of God. Put the spectacles of Scripture on so that you might discern your experiences rightly and as best you can. Second, notice how Peter had the Word of God committed to memory. You just look ahead in, um, in this chapter and look how much of Joel's prophecy he quotes He quotes from Joel's prophecy, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. A little bit later on in this message, he's going to quote from Psalm 16, verse 8 through verse 11. He's going to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the thing I want to remind you of right here is that Peter in this moment has the Word of God hidden in his heart, and he's ready for this occasion. The Word of God is there. The Spirit of God is bringing it to remembrance, and he is ready to proclaim it. He doesn't have a warm-up. He doesn't have a heads-up. Peter was called by God to preach. And you find that he has a lot of Scripture committed to memory. I just want to remind you, son or daughter of God, don't don't say, I don't have a good memory. I can't do it. You can do it. Little by little, you can remember portions of Scripture. Say, where do I start? Matthew chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus? No. (laughs) No. You could if you want to. I don't, think, I don't think you should start there. I would say if you, if you wanted to start somewhere, start in places where you could help explain the gospel to people. Right? You ever heard of the Romans' road of salvation? Maybe you just start there. If you're like, I haven't really committed Scripture to memory, start with Scripture that you could use to help people understand who Jesus is and what he has done. If you went through the Romans' road of salvation, for instance, you would take Bible verses from Paul's epistle to the Church of Rome, You would memorize them, and through a certain sequence, you could present the gospel to people. You could tell people, Romans 3.23, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. We are by nature sinners, and we are by choice sinners. You could tell them, we've all sinned, every one of us, and we fall short of God's glorious standard, we fall short of God's holiness, and we deserve judgment. You can then quote from Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Right? Wages are something you work for. It's something you earn. It's something you deserve. Well, the wages of our sin is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual and eternal death. But then you can go to the second part of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you say, there's bad news. We are sinners that demand the judgment of God. But there's good news. He offers the gift of eternal life to whoever by His grace believe and receive it. And you say, how could I be forgiven? You go to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated His own love towards us. Paul speaking about himself and those Roman Christians. And of course, all who would believe. God demonstrated His own love towards us in this. In that while we were still sinners or yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the way in which I could be forgiven. Jesus died in my place. He bore the wrath that I deserved. Right there. That's three scriptures. And you're preaching the gospel. And if somebody says, well, what do I do? Okay, what do I do? I hear that Jesus did that. What do I do? You say Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You quote Romans 10 verse 13, which... Peter is about to quote from Joel, the original source of that, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you tell them what comes as a result of that. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, being declared righteous by faith. Faith is the instrument, not works. You're calling upon the name of the Lord. You're looking to Him. Faith is the instrument. Therefore, being justified by faith, what do we have? Peace with God. Which implies that we didn't have it until we were justified by faith. We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God in our minds by wicked works to use language from elsewhere in the New Testament. And you're preaching the gospel. You're saying that we are justified by faith. And as a result, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to take it one step further, you can go to Romans chapter 8. You could say now for the one who is in Christ Jesus, there is no longer condemnation. Romans 8.1. As a matter of fact, for the one who is born again from above and believes the gospel, nothing can separate such a one from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38-39. You can memorize that. When this goes up on Sermon Audio, you can just keep listening to that over and over again with Romans right in front of you and say, I'm just going to keep listening to that until I get that so I could communicate that. Peter was ready. And he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. We'll walk through some of these details. These amazing details here. First, look at verse 16. Peter says, but this. You say, but what? What they were seeing and what they were hearing, people being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in languages that were foreign to them, but native to hearers. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's essentially saying this is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, namely what Joel spoke of. Now, I think what's happening here, and I'll unpack this a little bit more, is that Peter is declaring that the people were living in the messianic error. They were living in the last days, more about that in a moment. And I think, when you look at this text, I think Peter's essentially saying, I'm quoting Joel because you're seeing the beginning of the fulfillment of what Joel proclaimed here. I don't think it's the entirety of the quotation he's going to provide. The initial part of the quotation is fulfilled. That's the already. It has come to pass. I'll explain to you what that is, and we'll get to that in a moment. But then when you get to verses 19 and 20, that's the not yet of eschatology. That's what's coming. But all of it is part and parcel of this time that the Bible calls the last hour or the last days. Now, somebody might say, and I'm going to make this point again. Somebody might say, you know, it's interesting when you go through Old Testament prophecy how there could be certain moments that are linked together by way of verses but are separated by many years. And that's part of what happens in Old Testament prophecy. That you could have one thing fulfilled at one time and then you have another thing in the very next verse that's coming at a future time. More about that in a moment, but I wanted to address it because we will consider uh, how that works in this passage. First look at verses 17 and 18. What was coming to pass at that occasion, on that day? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. All right, walking through this text together, Peter begins by quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Now he adds a little bit of a spirit-inspired interpretation to what Joel had originally said. Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward. Peter, as he's speaking on the day of Pentecost, lets you know when afterward was, what was meant by that. Peter says it shall come to pass in the last days. He was essentially saying, this is the final season of human history as we know it. That's essentially what he was saying. Now that began, if you say, when did the last days begin? Some people say that the last days were in between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. I think to be a little bit more technically accurate, you would say, the last days began with Jesus' arrival, his first coming, and they end with Jesus' return. I say that because of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, we're told he was indeed, he indeed Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you. The writer of Hebrews says that he has spoken uh, to us in these last days, God has spoken to us in these last days, by his Son. So the last days, you're in it now. We're towards the last part of the last days. They were in the beginning of the last days. there on the day of Pentecost, towards the beginning. And this is the parenthesis, if you will, in human history. For those of you who know the book of Daniel, this is that parenthesis that is in between Daniel's prophetic 69th week and the 70th week. This is that moment in human history that was a mystery by and large, to Old Testament prophets. Remember the church. Paul talks about the church as being a mystery, something that was concealed in the Old Testament, at least to a large degree, and then is revealed in the New Testament. And that's part of the reason why you don't have this season, this parentheses expounded, the times of the Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is that last day's parentheses. In that time, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Um, note, Peter is applying that to the day of Pentecost. It's another reminder that when you see the word all in scriptures, you've got to nuance it, right? All of a certain group is what's in view here. All of God's new covenant people would be the ones that he would pour out his spirit upon. Don't forget how amazing and radical this was. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Go through the Old Testament and you'll find a kind of handful of people upon whom the Holy Spirit came. Moses, the 70 elders, Joshua, Bezalel, others, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, David. But yet in the church, in the New Covenant community, every one of you who is a son or daughter of God, God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon you. That's amazing. Notice the language too. He says He will pour of His Spirit. Which may, as one commentator noted, may call attention to the unfathomable, immeasurable, and inexhaustible fountain and fullness that the Holy Spirit is. Now you'll note here, he goes on to continue quoting Joel, and he says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now there's a few things I want to note here. First, to quote Daryl Bach, I think he makes a great point in saying... In both cases, the point is that God will be accessible to and direct His people. Now, I want to say in in this context, that's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is clearly this is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. God is pouring out His Spirit on all of His people. Not just certain prophets have access to the revelation of God. All of God's people are going to have God revealed to them and in them. I say that because remember what the Lord told Aaron and Miriam when they were basically saying, does the Lord only speak through Moses? And then the Lord was going to defend Moses, but He makes this statement in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. He says, If there is a prophet among you, if there is a prophet among you, this is in the Old Testament, this is in the Old Covenant, I, the Lord, make Myself known to Him in a vision. I speak to Him In a dream. So that was part of the way in which God would reveal Himself to Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets. Who got that? The prophet got that. Did everybody get that? No. So part of the picture, you're to understand here, when he's quoting Joel, he's basically saying what the prophets only had access to under the Old Covenant, all of God's people are going to have. They are going to have the revelation of God in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. They are going to have access to the Spirit of the living God. They're all going to prophesy. doesn't mean they're all going to tell the future. They're all going to be able to speak forth the truth of God with the Spirit of God taking up residence inside of them. It's part of the new covenant promise. Jeremiah 31 verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. As opposed to the old covenant where you had a covenant community filled filled with people, some of whom knew Yahweh, and some of whom didn't, in the New Covenant community, all who are truly born again from above are in the New Covenant, and every one of God's people know the living God. This doesn't mean that there isn't a need for teachers. Ephesians 4, Christ has given to the body, pastors and teachers and so on, but God has revealed Himself by His Spirit to His people. Now usually, so that's the big picture takeaway, but I'm going to tell you what I think happens to most people. The big picture takeaway, this is the day of Pentecost, so I'm going to make this point again. Day of Pentecost, God is pouring out His Spirit on all people. It's not just a prophet here or a prophet there. All people have access to the Lord through His Word and by His Spirit. But what happens is, people get um, caught up on the words here, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So a few notes about that. Um, First, when we're told here, your young men shall see visions... As you go through the book of Acts, you see that come to pass. Ananias, Paul, Peter, different ones that would have visions. Interestingly, with regards to dreams, uh, the word dreams that's used here is not used anymore in the New Testament with the exception of Jude verse 8. And in Jude verse 8, it has reference to apostates, false teachers, who were teaching bad doctrine and then had based some of their bad doctrine apparently upon the dreams that they had. So dreams are not mentioned, again, in the New Testament. Um, So one of the things I want you to note is that even from a new covenant perspective, even in the first century church, these things were more exceptional and interventional. I think that's important to understand. If you were to say, well, how were God's people to know what God's will was? Well, they were to know God's will through the revealed word of God. They were to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were to rightly divide the word of truth. They were to pray for wisdom and so on. Are you saying God cannot providentially use you know, a dream or so on? No, of course God can providentially use those things. But when we say, what does the New Testament teach us? We want to say the normative way in which God works is that God is going to get his word to people. And he's going to direct his people through his word. See, what can happen sometimes is that people may have God do an amazing thing in their life providentially. Some of you know my testimony. And my testimony, for instance, when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I had gone to a church and I had heard the gospel preached, but it wasn't like sitting in my mind. I didn't really get it yet. And then after 9-11 happened, I was in, uh, I was in my room in my parents' home and I was reading the Bible one night. I was reading from the Gospel of John. And I don't remember all of what I read, but I read from the Gospel of John. It was after 9 um, 11 happened, and for those of you who don't know, I used to go to school at Pace University, and I was supposed to be um, getting off the, off the express bus around the time the first tower went down, but I happened to wake up late that day and I watched the whole thing unfold on TV with my mom, and I'm just sitting there weeping. And then that night or the night after, I don't remember which one it was, I'm reading through the Gospel of John. And I stop and I close the Bible, and I remember talking to the Lord in the hallway of my parents' house, and I told the Lord, "Lord, I'm really scared. I wish you this was my prayer. Um, it is what it is, so I'll, I'll share it with you. Lord, I'm really scared. I wish you could hug me and let me yeah, I know. I, I, I wish you could hug me and let me know that everything was going to be all right. And then I asked them, "Come to me in a dream or something." Now I don't know anything about anything. Like, I've attended maybe three services or something like that. I don't know anything about anything. And I go to bed after having read the Gospel of John that night, and I'm hoping that there will be a dream given to me. And I wake up, and I was disappointed because there wasn't a dream. And I go into the living room, and my sister was crying to my mother. And uh, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, why is Michelle crying? Remember, this is clear as day. And she goes, she had had a dream last night. I go, well, my ears perked at that moment. When I heard that in God's providence, my ears perked. I said, what was the dream about? My mom had said, she she had a dream that grandma was hugging her and singing her a song and telling her that everything was going to be all right. And when I heard that, it was the same words of my prayer. And then my sister looks up at me with tears in her eyes and she says, and she told me to tell you that that song was for you. Now, I don't think that that was my grandmother showing up in a dream. I think it was God graciously, sovereignly, providentially using my sister's dream. And I remember me at that moment saying, my interpretation of this is God hears prayer. So I know God can intervene. Some of you know my story and you know that there are other things that God did where I know God can intervene. But what I want to protect you from is I want you to see the whole scope of the New Testament so you don't say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be waiting for that. And I want moments like that over and over and over again. By God's grace, I was protected from thinking that that was the steady diet of the Christian life. I just saw that as interventional and providential. And what I want to tell you is that if you develop that habit of just wanting God to intervene in some providential way, you're going to think the Bible's boring. It's the living and active Word of God. I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon superbook. Talking to adults, but I hope some of you, I see some heads nodding, right? In the cartoon superbook, right, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's well done. I really l- like it. I, by and large, I just think it's um, so well done. But what would happen in the episodes is that there would be a life lesson that the kids need to learn. And then, like, the Bible comes out. Uh, I think it's like an electronic version. of it, Maybe it's not. Uh, it comes out. And then all of a sudden, it opens up. And they get sucked into it. And then they are, like, you know, with Gideon or with, you know, Nehemiah and so on. And some people come to think, like, that's got to happen. And if that doesn't happen, this is boring. Give me the good stuff. This is the good stuff. I'm not diminishing any ways in which God wants to intervene. But I'm just telling you, read through the Gospels. Look how much Jesus quotes the Bible. Get Jesus' view of Scripture. Go through the New Testament. And we've done this in our study of 1 Timothy and see how God is calling His people to a steady diet of being nourished by the words of life. It doesn't mean God can't intervene. But if He does, it's by His own gracious, sovereign providence and praise Him for it. But make sure that you don't diminish and neglect the life-giving, soul-nourishing Word of the living God. The same Word that begot you to use language from 1 Peter chapter 1 is the same word that keeps nourishing you to use language from 1 Peter chapter 2. So this is an amazing moment. And again, um, you have all different groups that are a part of this. Even 120 that are there. They're made up of men and women, probably younger and older individuals. All of God's people. Young and old. The Lord says, On my maid, men servants and on my maid's servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then Peter adds, and they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. Um, When we look at the Hebrew text, uh, there we just see Joel referencing that the Spirit would be poured out on men, servants and maid servants. So maybe this is calling attention to different economic stations, right? It didn't matter whether you were on the low rung of the societal spectrum or whether you were a rich ruler. It didn't matter. God was going to pour out His Spirit on all of His people, all of them. And let me just note this, I said it before so you can understand, when you see that language and they shall prophesy, right, that don't just jump to the conclusion that that means predicting the future. You'll see prophets in the New Testament, you'll see that, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You'll see Agabus, and Agabus will foretell the future and so on. But you are to understand that language is not only foretelling, but forthtelling. You, by the grace of God, you have access to the Word of God. The Spirit of God is in you. When you are speaking the truth of God, there's a sense in which you are prophesying. You are forth what God has revealed. Now, following this outpouring of the Holy Spirit would come a time of judgment. Now, Joel, when he's making this prophecy initially, I would even say Peter, when he's quoting this prophecy... They do not know how much time is going to be in between the pouring out of the Spirit and the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Again, that's the church age. Again, that was a mystery that was hidden. Paul calls it a mystery in the New Testament, which means it was something that was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. So what you're going to see, verses 17 and 18, have fulfillment. That's the already. Now we come to the not yet, verses 19 and 20. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. What I want to do is I want to basically show you something that if we were downstairs in small group, like we will be this Wednesday, plugged for Wednesday small group, and we could talk more about everything we're talking about, um, I would walk you through some Old Testament texts to show you that it's a common pattern to say you have one thing being prophesied that would happen at one time, and then something else prophesied shortly thereafter that would happen later. I'll give you a couple of examples of this briefly. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we have a prophecy of Jesus' first coming. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I could take you through so many Old Testament texts. I did it with my family last night in our family devotional because it happened to connect with where we are in the book of Acts in Acts 13. To show you that language of the branch is speaking of the coming Messiah. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, if you wanted to see that. There would come one from the line of Jesse, which was the line of David, and he would be the Messiah. Isaiah 11 verse 1 is about Jesus' first coming. You just read on. After we're told the Holy Spirit would be upon Him, and we see that in verses 2 and 3, we get to verse 4 and we're told, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. So why am I showing you this? Right there, Isaiah 11 verse 1, first coming. Isaiah 11 verse 4, second coming. This is a pattern. This is something you see. One other example. I want to show you That's what's happening in Joel is not uncommon. It's something you see in the prophets. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and verse 10. The first verse I'm going to quote to you regards Jesus' first coming. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey when was that fulfilled triumphal entry right when jesus rides into jerusalem just as zechariah prophesied that he would but then you read the very next verse and the very next verse says i will cut off from i will cut off the chariot from ephraim and the horse from jerusalem the battle bow shall be cut off in other words There's going to be no more need for war. I'm bringing it to an end. Wars will cease. Now you could say, well, in some sort of typological near fulfillment way that's happened in his church where his people are in harmony with one another. But I think this is pointing to the second coming where Jesus establishes peace on earth after judgment. He shall speak peace to the nations, his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, first coming. Zechariah 9:10, second coming. So it's not strange when you read Joel chapter 2, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. That is the already, that's day of Pentecost fulfillments, and so on. And then you read on verses 19 and 20. That concerns the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's just walk through these notes briefly. Um, Some people say that these things are symbolic, and that's all that they are. That the things you read in verses 19 and 20 20 are just symbolic of judgment, and you're not supposed to expect for these things to literally happen. Um, I don't think so. I think they are literal, and I'll give you a few reasons why I think they're literal. First, look at verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. These things are meant to be seen. These things are meant to be beheld. So any references that they have in the Old Testament are pointing ultimately to this coming eschatological end times day when Jesus returns. Furthermore, in the New Testament, um, Jesus' disciples in Matthew 24, verse 3, asked him, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 29 says basically some of the things you see right here. And again, they're asking, what's going to be the sign of your coming or the end of the age? Like, like, how are we going to know it's happening? Well, right before Jesus Christ returns, these are things that are going to happen, I would argue, very literally. The people had already gotten a taste of some of these things. Remember when Jesus was crucified, the sky went dark. Remember that? The rocks split, the ground shook so they got, a, they got a sense, a little bit of a taste of that, but it wasn't this. This hasn't happened yet. Not to mention, when you hear Jesus speaking in Matthew 20, uh, 24 in that Olivet Discourse passage, um, this, is, this kind of thing is connected with the moments right before he returns, or essentially synonymous with it. Um, one other thing I would want you to know is that when you look at the time frame, because some people get, hooked, uh, get tripped up on this and they say, couldn't this have happened already? Even if you took a view that certain events of the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled before 70 AD and so on, there's no way this was. Because if you look at Matthew 24, Jesus says after the tribulation of those days... The disciples hadn't been killed for Jesus' name yet. None of those things had happened. So to say that Peter is saying this is fulfilled, to me is not an argument you want to make. This is future. This is later. Um, Not to mention, sixth seal in the book of Revelation. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. You could look at Zechariah 14.6 as well, see similar language. This is all before the day of God's coming judgment, when Jesus returns. Which appropriately leads us into verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Feel the flow of the text. The messianic error is here. God has poured out His Spirit. A time of judgment is coming. So what are you to do if you have not done it? You are to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Just in the same way that the Greeks in that culture might call upon, the language was used in the Greek language of the day to speak of how people would call upon false deities for help. You are to call upon the Lord and Savior who is truly Lord and Savior to be your salvation. You look to Him alone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the question I just ask is, have you done that? Not have you attended church? Not have you just kind of assumed that by you know, virtue of osmosis and being around Christians that you have become Christian Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Has the Spirit of God so moved your heart and awoken your mind that you have said, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior. I confess you with my mouth because I, by your grace, have believed in my heart that you are Lord and you died for my sins and you rose from the grave. Have you confessed with your mouth? If you are a Christian, have you told others that you believe Jesus is the only way? Not that you think that Christianity is better than other religions. Not that you think Christianity could be more easily argued than other religions. Not that you think, you know, Jesus was a good guy, and there's a lot to, you know, all what Christianity teaches. But that you believe that he is the Lord and Savior, the Son of God, and the only way in which sinners can be forgiven. Have you done that? Confess him with your mouth by virtue of having believed in your heart. While there is breath in your lungs, call on the name of the Lord. Receive God's offer of mercy and be saved from the wrath to come. You know, it's interesting. We'll go into this a little bit more later um, in future weeks, um, Lord willing. But when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, interestingly, Peter's quoting the Old Testament, right? You look in the Old Testament in Joel 2.32, Lord there is in caps, Yahweh. When Peter's applying Lord here, who is he speaking about? Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is Yahweh. To call upon Jesus is to call upon Yahweh. Amazing. You see that if you wanted to read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. um, I've already quoted part of that to you. Last thing I want to say as we prepare to close is whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know what, all, what you all have done. I know some, right? Because we've gotten to know each other in some cases. But in many cases, I don't. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, whether you've been a blasphemer, whether you've been an adulterer, whether you have been a, uh, whatever it might be, a thief, a fornicator, whoever you are, you call upon the name of the Lord. And by God's grace, you are saved. True confession. Now, how do you know it's a true confession? Remember, Jesus speaks about those who will say on that day to him, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Lord, Lord. But he would say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So, how do you know if your confession of faith is actually the real thing? If it is the real thing, you will follow him. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. If you confess him as Lord, you will not live a perfect life. You will still be a sinner, but you will follow him like Lord. If you confess that he's Lord, but you live like like you're the Lord of your life, good possibility, you don't know him. So if you want to know, if you know Jesus, you say, do I have works that substantiate the reality of my faith? I'm not saved by my works, but do I have works that actually show that my faith is a real deal? Or do I not have works which would make me think that my faith is actually fool's gold as opposed to real gold? We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you love Christians? Do you want to spend time with Christians? Do you want to serve Christians? That's part of the way you can know whether or not you've been born again from above. Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Or do you believe that he's one way among many? See, if you confess him as Lord, bundled into that is a work of God's spirit where you believe he's the only way. He is the prophesied son of God. He died for your sins. No works you could do could ever make yourself clean. It's only the work that he did. And you're receiving that gift by faith that makes a sinner freed from the guilt of sin. And by God's grace, they spend forever with the Lord. I love um, what Spurgeon said. He asks nothing of us, but that we ask everything of him. And that is the call. Now, this all sets up where Peter is going. He quotes from Joel, and then, right in the very next verse, we're going to see him essentially say, and about Jesus of Nazareth. Since we're talking about calling on the name of the Lord, about Jesus of Nazareth. But Lord willing, we'll come to that um, next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your life-giving, soul-nourishing word. Thank you for the gracious way in which you intervene by your spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for pouring out your Spirit upon all flesh, all of your sons and daughters. How amazing it is to think that we live in the messianic era, this new covenant age, where your people are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they can be mouthpieces, kind of walking portraits of your grace. Hallelujah. Father, I pray if there be anyone in this place who has not called upon the name of the Lord, oh, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you lead such ones to say, No, today is the day of salvation. I am calling upon the name of the Lord, I am looking to Christ alone. It's not about the quantity of my faith. It's about the object of my faith. And God, you've opened my eyes to see Jesus as the only Savior and the one in whom I am to place all of my hope for forgiveness and reconciliation. Oh, may it be. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.